Hi, everyone. This is Serena Catania. I have Peter Hamilton on the line. I'm so excited. Been, I, Peter, you know, I've been following you for years. You are the preeminent expert on anything having to do with documentary, SVOD, the new markets, distribution. So I know we have a lot to talk about. I won't take too much time introducing you, but I do want people to know that you have had clients in all sectors of this business since the 80s. And if they're not following you on documentarybusiness.com, they really need to be. So, Peter, Thank you, Serena. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I wrangled you. I know you're really busy, but can you talk to us about all these different services? I know producers at all levels are wondering... Let's talk a bit about the landscape, and we're going to t- and then we're going to drill down to the documentaries because okay. it's the, the business of the documentary business that I'm most interested in. And uh, word of caution: it's a period of intense change, and uh, predictions and uh, you know analysis is very vulnerable at this time. Anyway, so let's look quickly at the landscape. You know, there are more than 250 SVOD services in the U.S. already. And uh, each year, you know, a dozen or a couple of dozen uh, close. And then we have a whole new wave of services coming on. There's subscription video online services like Netflix. And these include world powers, you know, like Disney. So uh, the industry is in for a, a, a major shakeup. And this is at a time when the audience for broad, the traditional broadcasters and cable and satellite channels is in decline. So let's drill a little further. Netflix has 150 million subscribers worldwide, Prime 75 million, Hulu nearly 30 million, and then drilling down CBS Showtime 8 million, HBO Now 8 million, and I won't go through the rest of the 250 services just in the States alone. So they're the leaders. And, um, you know, what's really critical about this business is that because their subscriber services like magazines. And so subscribers have to keep subscribing month by month. And unlike magazines where you normally take out, a, as you know, a year-long subscription, you can cancel your online service like month to month. And so retention rate is really important. First of all, these services have to acquire subscribers and then keep them. Now, Netflix has a 93% retention rate according to research recently published by Variety, which is really incredible. But HBO Now, which is a really estimable service with enormous quality, they lose half their subscribers each year. So it's a very vulnerable business. Do you think that might be because, and I don't want to get too far off track, but I'm curious, could that be because HBO is more event-driven? And they don't have as much programming as Netflix? I'm sure that's part of the factor. But look, Netflix is the industry leader. Netflix was probably the first service you subscribe to. So it's the kind of anchor for your for your experience. And each new service is incremental and therefore vulnerable to, you know, budget cutting or there's just not enough stuff there cutting, whatever. You know, just the other point, though, that if HBO has a, a cancellation rate, 53%, according to the chat, the chart that I looked at, any newcomers, any new services must have just massive, they must be losing 90% of their subscribers, 80% month to month. And so subscription services keep their subscribers by providing exciting new content that fits the knowledge that they have about their subscribers. 
So the content spend is becoming enormous. Netflix, 15 billion. Amazon, an estimated 6 billion this year. And then drilling down even to social media, Facebook, a couple of million. Uh, Apple, a billion as they, you know, throw their hat in the ring. And then, um, you know, looking inside, outside SVOD services, because Disney is both a studio and, a, and about to emerge its own platform and owns Hulu, controls Hulu, by the way. You know, they spend $16 billion on content. So there's an enormous expenditure, ramp up in expenditure. But let's face it, most of that is for scripted. It's for the binge-watching series that we've, you know, grown to love. So the question for us, Serena, is where do documentaries fit in the mix? And documentaries are not drivers of subscriptions in this in this service. They they serve to garner publicity because the media is very sensitive to the documentary genre. It's very much in the vibe of our times to make a documentary. It's a regular topic of conversation. So the networks look for press reviews. They look for awards. You know, they really drive towards the Oscars and uh, Sundance and other awards. Um, and documentaries help considerably with respect to subscriber retention. As subscribers might be, you know, they might be watching sport on their on their service or they might be watching porn or they might be watching just regular crime drama. But just the knowledge that there's this quality content kind of gives their conscience an ease as they spend <laughs> another $12 or so. And that was always the case with cable and satellite, right? reason why I subscribe to, I don't know, Spectrum or to Time Warner is because I love Discovery. But, hey, how much Discovery watching do they do? Maybe 1% of their viewing. But documentaries, because they are kind of, you know, the category is regarded as as um, as very positive are also very useful in a regulatory environment and these tech giants are about to face a, a regulatory on onslaught they're pushing back by ramping up their own you know lobbyists down in washington hiring ex-prime ministers and this that and the other thing so there's a battle going on and they can always say yeah but we have these wonder we have a thousand hours of wonderful documentaries it's educational and blah 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 so documentaries <laughs> serve multiple purposes for these big SVOD services, but they do not drive viewing. It's scripted. Clearly, it's the binge-watched, you know, scripted series that drive the, the the real loyalty retention of the audience. So what next? You know, what kind of documentaries? Yeah, I want to know more about that. I was just looking at a list of 120 Netflix documentaries, and I'm publishing this in a study that will be coming in a week or so called you know, Netflix, what you need to know now. Great. That's great. And I love your studies, by the way. They are so comprehensive. Anyway, go ahead. So, yeah, this is, you know, like Netflix is a black box. They don't share ratings. They don't share viewing data, no demos, nothing. Uh, so, you know, we've got to look from outside, and that's what we're trying to do here. But, look, looking down the list here, what do you see? It's characterized by a the involvement of A-listers. And I have this saying, which is an overstatement, if it's not a film by um, Steven Spielberg, it better be a film about Steven Spielberg. So A-list subjects and A-list creative and executive producer involvement are really critical. And I just looked at my list. Beyonce, Leonardo DiCaprio, Spielberg, 
several Kennedys, a Schwarzenegger. I mean, that's on the producer side, an executive producer side. And then directors, Errol Morris, Barbara Koppel, Ava DuVernay, you know, Tom Jennings, the historian, the um, archive, the brilliant archive director, I mean, producer director. So, you know, these are the, you know, the, the award-winning names that, that get a Guernsey uh, and get privileged access to, uh, at Netflix and, and also at, um, at um, Amazon Prime and, you know, less so at, um, at Hulu, but also there. And then the acquisitions are not just like interesting topics on hard social issues made by independent producers. If they are, they're films that have survived an unbelievable competitive environment by winning at Sundance, maybe Tribeca. But, um, you know, for the independents to stand out and to get that Netflix attention through big awards. On the awards subject very quickly, and I'm, I'm sorry I keep interrupting you, but I, my oh, mind no, is going. This is awesome. Does Berlin, does the Berlin Film Festival, do you think that's making more inroads now? I just have this feeling that Berlin is climbing up in terms of prestige and, and uh, you know, I've been watching it for so many years and I do go every year. I don't go and I wish I did because I love Berlin. I would have to push back, Serena, and say that. You know, Sundance gets 90% of the attention and all of the others get about 10%. Wow. I mean, if you, you know, it's the old industry leader factor. If you're the number one, you know, you hug up a tremendous amount of attention. So I would say that Sundance, you know, and this year Netflix played, you know, $10 million for the AOC film, you know, the film about the, the, the young women who were aspiring to join Congress and they got lucky by you know, by picking the celebrity, political celebrity of, of the last several years. So the acquisitions, you know, uh, of completed films that aren't developed by Netflix uh, tend to be award winners unless they hit a particular niche that their audience is, is, is proven that it's in. So that's kind of, a, you know, the landscape. And I know you're going to ask me, what do they pay? Yeah, of course. I want to know what they pay and what the deals are. <laughs> well, if you're lucky, they paid $10 million for the AOC film. <laughs> I don't think I have that kind of charisma, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, either do I. Boy, was that lucky, money. And uh, not lucky. You know, hey, everybody deserves their good fortune. Um, you know, and that ranges down, you know, there was another acquisition at Sundance apparently for $5 million. Uh, they'll pay – they'll – Commission, fully commission a film, all rights, all territories in the five to ten million dollar range, you know. And then the condition again is it has, you know, the Morgan Morgan Nevilles, the Errol Morrises, the Barbara Coppels, the Ava DuVernay, those type of creatives involved, as well as celebrity executive producers like, you know, Leo DiCaprio. So the range is enormous for commissions. And uh, also for acquisitions, you know, as we mentioned, the 10, up to $10 million, which is clearly a record. But an off-the-shelf acquisition, let's say, you know, you and I produced a really fascinating film on, I don't know, a powerful story of racial discrimination in Kansas. And it's a, you and I make a really nice film. It gets really great reviews, doesn't really get theatrical release. We funded it through a foundation and we offer it to Netflix. So it's an off-the-shelf acquisition. 
They'll pay as little as 25, 40, 50, 100, you know, 150,000 dollars for an off-the-shelf acquisition. You know, they'll they'll know that we don't have many options. You and can't so make them for that. If you're doing a really good job, it's difficult to make a film for that. No, you, you can't. Can. No, you well, you can't make a. No. This could be a a Sundance finalist, right? A film that good that's completed and mm-hmm. funded, and it doesn't have too many places to go. So it's probably got a budget between. You know, four hundred and a million and a half, or something like that, and so that's what they'll pay for an acquisition. Now, um, is that exclusive rights, or is that non-exclusive? Most, what they're looking for is worldwide exclusive rights, uh, but they wow. do they do carve outs, mm-hmm. and you know there are real issues with a film whether they're there can be a, um, an outreach campaign. So let's say a film is made to, I don't know, in, encourage vaccinations and then, the, you know, and, and the filmmakers uh, have the intention of working with, say, the Gates Foundation to have lots of theatrical screenings around the country and delivering the film educationally. Uh, and by the way, that's, a, you know, an under, underrated distribution channel for documentaries deserves a lot more focus than it's getting for everything but these hit docs. In in that case, Netflix might limit the ability of the filmmakers to commit to this outreach campaign. And, uh, you know, I'm not certain about where this is. I'm going to be looking into it in the next few weeks. But they do want an aggressive grant of rights. And how do you get to, you know, how do you get in? Because, you know, we've got, I mentioned all this fantastic talent from you know from Beyonce on <laughs> uh, of course they have agents and Netflix say that you can't get in unless you're packaged up with an agent so it's extremely you know they just thinking about the traditional model for for the real screen conference where discovery TLC the scripts networks reels they would all have an acquisitions person sitting at a table taking pictures all day from either established filmmakers through to complete wannabes you know the doors are not open to those kinds of discussions at netflix Uh, you need to be represented by an agent or have a really unusually unusual access through a colleague so i think if you're an outsider if you if you don't have that agent access i recommend to you know say emerging producers or established producers who aren't at that kind of a-lister level to marry up with somebody right and you know even well-established producers work with you know look for leo dicaprio to take on their project marrying up you lose a lot of control but at least you get your vision completed it's right. you know it's a tough decision this feels like the studios and the network system all over again it's just a replication of what uh, for so many years we did when we were submitting for theatrical release or for network show you had to have a showrunner or for you had to have an agent so this just it just feels like a duplication of that old system it is and um, however um, we've got to remember that it runs in parallel to the channels economy cable and satellite and also 
broadcast, although the broadcasters don't commission many documentaries. But the channels system, channels, yeah, the channels ecosystem, you, you know, led by names like Discovery and Nat Geo and History and, and, you know, HBO and Showtime and so on, you know, they are still, first of all, they're under pressure because they're losing subs from cord cutters and cord shavers and cord nevers and so on. So their reach is, is diminishing and their viewers are under pressure from Netflix and the SVOD services. So most of them are losing audiences. However, they still have prime times to fill and they have deals with the cable distributors like AT&T and others to provide, you know, a refreshed, compelling, you know, schedule of programs. And also they're still selling advertising. Their advertising sales are stronger than you would imagine, and that's because they're curated programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if, whereas if the advertisers put their advertisement up on social media, they might end up next to a live mass murder or right. you know, a neo-Nazi rant or something. So there's a lot of brand vulnerability you know, in social media, Netflix and Amazon are advertiser-free. Where are the advertisers going to go? They're continuing their investment in cable and satellite despite their slowly eroding audiences. Hmm. And that's a mega billion-dollar business. And I think that's really important for producers. Don't get fixated on Netflix. Realise that um, that the channels are still buying and still looking for new new shows, even though it's not the go-go years of 10 years ago. So we were talking about rights. You mentioned worldwide. There's not a whole lot of room for educational. Well, we're talking about the channels, too. Where does all this leave the channels? Are they being pinched? Yeah. You know, as I mentioned, they're losing their footprint is shrinking mm-hmm. because of cord cutting. You know, like Discovery used to be in more than 100 million homes, and I think it's in the high 80s now. I'd have to check. So, over, you know, their, their footprint is shrinking, which means that even if they maintain their ratings, their share of the available homes, their audience is in decline. Really, the only exception to that that I've seen at, at a, you know, big scale is the Crime Network Discovery's ID right. investigation right. discovery, because true crime is the golden era for true crime, whether it's scripted. Oh. And it's also for unscripted crime, documentary series and and reality series on cable and satellite channels. And ID is the boss. Well, we have a whole other session that I want to schedule regarding content. (laughs) But but, uh, talk to me about... uh about PBS as well, because I think PBS is still buying documentaries. and You know, really, I'm glad we're talking about PBS. In my newsletter, documentarybusiness.com, I just did a post on PBS's audience, and it's eroding also, like the broadcasters. However, in a period of fragmentation of audiences across all of these platforms, not to mention YouTube, Facebook, all these other services that offer video product, PBS is coming back into focus as a service that is curated, is safe, and interestingly, 
It's like Netflix. It offers an advertiser-free environment. It's uninterrupted environment of programming. So instead of looking kind of old and stodgy, you know, because it wasn't a trendy advertiser-supported network like Discovery at the time or History, it's now resembles more the trendy service, which is Netflix or, for that matter, Amazon Prime. So I think PBS with it has scale. The average audience is well is 1.3 million viewers. So it has scale. It's curated, so it's safe, and it's uninterrupted by advertisers. And I just see a swing back in regard for PBS. And I don't know whether PBS has the resources to take advantage of it, or whether you know the focus of the advertisers and sponsors is you know, moved elsewhere. But, you know, I actually think PBS is looking good right now. It seems to be a little bit more, and tell me if I'm wrong because you're the expert, but it's a little bit more um, old-fashioned corporate. And also, don't you program more regionally or locally with PBS? I mean, sometimes you can get an overall deal, but a lot of times as a documentary filmmaker, I think with PBS, you're having to go to the different stations, aren't you? Because it's almost like yeah. working with franchises. Yeah, yeah. and and at the national level, you know, PBS has an output deal with uh, the BBC and, and and has always traditionally strongly favoured British producers versus and production companies versus, you know, local production companies for both dra- for drama and unscripted. However, you know, in aggregate, PBS's national schedule, which includes, you know, history, science, drama and other strands, the PBS national you know, feed is still a very active commissioner. Not hmm. the scale of the networks, but still very important. You have one more question for you about um, co-productions, because that's what a lot of us have to go through. We don't get our money from one place or another. Uh, how how do these? How does international programming come into this? Yeah, you really the- good question. You know, with cable and satellite audiences in decline, and with therefore budgets being you use the word pinched you know the money is like uh, the money has been pinched to pay senior executives or whatever uh with budgets you know (laughs) being tighter producers are more incentivized to look for international partners so let's just gaze across the atlantic to europe uh french british excuse me french and german um, public television broadcasting is very strong, very well supported by, you know, various uh, by either government agencies or in the case of France with uh, particular tax remits. And then bro- public broadcasting is strong also in Scandinavia, the Netherlands, Belgium and uh, Switzerland. And I don't know who I missed. So there's still strong funding there. It uh, doesn't appear to be in decline yet from the right wing you know, populist reactions that we read so much about. And those networks are also actively looking for co-production partners. And the way to get them, Serena, is there's only one way, and that's to go to markets and meet them and establish relationships and earn trust. And once again, don't be afraid to marry up, you know, find Mm -hmm. someone that has all those relationships. You know, we mentioned all the big players, but there is a factual subscription video on demand service called Curiosity Stream that was launched by John Hendricks. Who's I am so of- interested in that. I am so interested in that. Tell me about that. You know, they offer a full range of factual 
classic factual genres, the kinds of programs that the uh, networks, uh, the cable and satellite networks forgot about as they went into um, either reality or kind of A-lister topics. And I'm actually doing a case study on a French co-production for which Curiosity Stream has the US rights, and that subject is uh, Discoveries of Pompeii because there is a new dig in Pompeii, the first one since uh, the post-war era, uh, where there is just amazing stuff being revealed with all the new technologies that archaeologists have now at their fingertips. Curiosity Stream is not a big player. They only do like four or five of these you know, substantial co-productions a year. But, you know, they are very much engaged in, you know, classic quality, informational, entertaining, but at the same time entertaining programming. Now, I cut you off earlier. You were saying who started it? John Henricks was the founder of Discovery. And awesome. uh, he was the, you know, founder, chairman and chief executive for decades, for you know, several decades. And, and uh, you know, he has, I think he launched this service five years ago. I have four years ago, I have an interview with the current president and CEO, Clint Stinchcombe. And Clint was a discovery executive who then moved on to, you know, various activities in the mergers and acquisition area as it related to content providers and distributors. And he's come back to Curiosity Stream. And so you'll be able to hear that via my website, my newsletter, documentarybusiness.com. That's awesome. And I'm doing a lot more coverage in the next few weeks of this whole field. I'm actually doing another interview with the founder of a niche, hyper niche, I'd call it, SVOD service, which focuses on the British royal family. Oh, I love it. (laughs) So that's another subscription service. And that's an example of the niche, hyper niche, super serve the niche. So that's another model that's emerging. I don't know how that model will work out because potentially, you know, Netflix could just buy up and commission all that audiences need, you know, since they're the giants and have this unlimited spending, but maybe not because as we all know, you know, when programmers have really deep expertise, they can provide compelling programs that, you know, general, that just pass by the generalists. Are you enjoying all this, Peter? Yeah, I I love change. And um, I mean, I started my career as a teacher using a bell and howl. And uh, when people say today, yesterday someone said, at our network we run the sprockets off this, that and the other thing. And I'm saying I'm probably the only person in the room that's ever run the sprockets off anything. (laughs) And uh, so I love change. I've seen our industry shift. That is the documentary, you know, the valuable documentary content shift from 16 mil to VHS to DVD to simultaneously to cable and satellite and, you know, now to SVOD, you know, with consistent broadcasters and public broadcasters throughout the whole period. And I've seen our business grow from back in the 16 millimeter Bell and Howell days from just a hyper niche, right, selling to schools and public libraries to being a mega billion dollar business. I mean, look at the value of Discovery and, and you know, A&E Networks and Nat Geo and so many of the others. So I just think there's incredible opportunity out there, but you can't have a sense of entitlement. You can't think that just because I made an important film about my grandmother who had a really tough time, you know, 
because she was a refugee or she was a pioneering feminist or she was a, you know, a scientist who was ignored or whatever. Just because you think it's a great story doesn't mean that anybody else does. So you really have to study the market. What do they want? What are they paying? Otherwise, you're you're just uh, super serving one market and that's yourself. Oh, that's true. And that's why I appreciate so much what you do, because you're a great source of good information. What do you see for us all in the future? Do you have any predictions? Do you have a crystal ball? No, um, but I had a really great discussion with a friend, a friend and colleague of mine, Ed Hirsch, who's a senior consultant. His company is called Story Centric. And, and Ed just reminded me of that modus operandi for anyone in our business. When you have a meeting with somebody, don't go into a pitch if they're a buyer. You try and establish a relationship with them, you know? Exactly. Like if you a bar and you fall in love with somebody, you know, and it's an instant love affair, you don't start asking them to get married straight away. You still talk about, <laughs> you know, shared likes and so on. So you need to establish a relationship. And you know what? The best question, another colleague of mine, Michael Hoff, who's a really incredibly experienced producer, he always says you never go into a meeting with a potential buyer and say, I've got the right medicine for you. Here it is, right? The doctor doesn't do that. What you go in when you're a producer and you see the network and you say, or the buyer, you say, where are you hurting? What do you need? Are you weak on Tuesday night? Are you a bit short of programs that meet a female audience on a Saturday? Um, Are you a bit short in your inventory in um, films about, you know, non-crime fashion-related subject? Whatever. Ask questions, get into a relationship, and then you can start to think about how to deliver. But you know, it takes a lot of hubris to say, I made this film, it's great, you should take it. Yeah, and they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it. They're the experts, not you. And I think you need to go in with a sense of respect. And you're right, it is all about relationships. And uh, I am going to thank you for your time, because I know you're really, really busy. We could talk forever. But Peter, I wish you all the best and keep doing what you're doing, because it's so valuable to all of us. And um, well, thank you, Serena. Yeah. So, my last word is, uh, listeners, go to documentarybusiness.com and uh, mm-hmm. you'll find a lot of valuable information there. And, Serena, I'll share a couple of slides with you and um, for your your um, service and also some links too. That would be awesome. Everybody, thank you for listening. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I'm speaking with Peter Hamilton of documentarybusiness.com, a leading consultant in the this side of the business so remember what i always tell you get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today thank you peter and thank you in the audience for listening you have a wonderful day 